On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to About Books. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Internet Archive's founder, Brewster Kale, about digital libraries and electronic book lending and about the high-profile copyright case that publishers have brought against his organization. But first, here's two news items from the publishing world. Well, Simon & Schuster recently announced that it'll publish the latest book by best-selling historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's titled An Unfinished Love Story, A Personal History of the 1960s. The publisher describes the book as equal parts biography, memoir, and history, which takes readers along on the journey that Miss Goodwin and her husband Richard embarked upon in the final years of his life. Miss Goodwin said about the book, quote, America has been at odds with itself before. I've been drawn to such turbulent times. This is the story of one of those times, of my husband and myself and our generation shaped by the cataclysms of the 1960s, unquote. Miss Goodwin is best known for biographies of American presidents, including 2005's Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. Her new book is set to be released in April of 2024. And some sad news from the independent bookseller scene. It lost one of its champions last month. The San Francisco Chronicle reported that Neil Softman died on September 6th. He was 75 years old. Softman was founder of a clean, well-lighted place for books, which operated in the San Francisco area for nearly 25 years. More recently, he was co-owner of Bookshop West Portal. And it was Mr. Softman who is credited with the popular phrase among booksellers, give a book because no one ever talks about the tie that changed his life. Here's some video from the C-SPAN archives of Mr. Softman back in 1998, talking about the importance of independent bookstores. Now, there's still many wonderful libraries and many wonderful librarians, but we no longer have uh, a robber baron who's building libraries around the country, and um, we are losing much of the infrastructure that we once had as a, a place to go and learn about our own heritage. And that's what bookstores were doing in the last 15, 20 years. They were placing much of what was lost in libraries as we were having our, our budgets cut back in our municipalities and in our, certainly in our public schools. I, mean, I, I, I went to the library in the public school, and not that many schools have libraries anymore. And that's one of the reasons that independent bookstores are so important. Um, the, the people who work in independent bookstores tend to work for much longer periods of time. Our mission statement as booksellers has much more to do with a way of life and what we want to do with our lives than a corporation. Corporate booksellers have a a mission statement which is fundamentally to return the largest profit to their investors. That's what they have to do. Um, Otherwise, their investors are going to take their money and invest it elsewhere. Consequently, they have to keep labor costs down. They have to, and, and if they do keep labor costs down, it's never enough. They've got to keep cutting back because they always have to have ever-improving profits. So they do not want to sponsor career booksellers. They don't want staff who spends too much time with the public because that costs them money. 
they, they by definition, want to sell the most books for the least cost. And that's very different from most booksellers. For most of us, uh, I think in some ways what Andy said is true. A lot of us feel like we don't quite fit in elsewhere. We, we know books. We, I mean, it's what we dedicate our lives to. And, you know, there's, there's almost nothing more enjoyable than, than to talk to people about books. Um, and we don't have anybody to come over to us and say, now, now you've got to go help another customer or you've got to go you know, do something else. Um, we all have to stay in business with these ever-shrinking margins. But we have a very different mission statement. And that's one of the things that separates independence from the smallest to the largest independent. We have a different calling than the corporate stores. And now a discussion on digital libraries and electronic book lending. C-SPAN's Peter Slen recently sat down with Internet Archive's founder, Brewster Kale, whose organization is involved in a high-profile and high-stakes copyright case. And now we want to introduce you to Brewster Kale. He is the founder of something you might be familiar with. It's called the Internet Archive. Mr. Kale, what is the purpose of the Internet Archive? The Internet Archive is a nonprofit research library, largely used over the Internet, um, by people trying to dive deeper, say, into Wikipedia articles by clicking through on the citations on the bottom and finding themselves on web pages that have might have been disappeared or on books uh, right at the right page to be able to follow up and learn more. How many unique visitors do you have a day or per year? Um, per day, we get about 2 million people coming to the website, but about 5 million come and use the Internet Archive's resources in one way or another. It's about the between the 200th and the most or 300th most popular website. So people actually want a library. And is it free? Yes, everything is free on the Internet Archive. We collect uh, web pages, books, music, video. And the idea is that this is free public access. Um, and yes, you can borrow books. You can look at old web pages. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a library. So when you founded this in 1996, what was your thought behind it? The idea is to build universal access to all knowledge. Could we go and make the Digital Library of Alexandria, right? Could we actually make it so that people that are curious enough to want to have access to the published works of humankind, they could get access to it? That was the promise when I was growing up. You walked into a library and they said, we have everything. And if we don't have it here, we'll get it for you. That was the promise of the Internet that I signed on to in 1980 to try to help build the Internet into that. By 96, it was time to build the library. And so we've been building this library for the last 27 years. Well, there was a recent headline on a website called The Conversation. It says that the Internet Archive's digital library has been found in breach of copyright. What is this about? So uh, what happened is we've been uh, with about 100 other libraries directly and a couple hundred other libraries um, have been lending digitized books uh, since 2011. So we, um, we try to buy ebooks, but it turns out that the big publishers will not sell ebooks, which is really strange. We should go back into that. Um, but because they will not sell ebooks to libraries, we're taking the physical books that we have digitizing them, often from the 20th century long out of print, and we lend them to one reader at a time. So it's 26 possible readers a year for one of the books that we own. 
Um, and suddenly this became um, a big trauma for the uh, publishers in the early uh, pandemic, the idea that people would be able to check out uh, and 26 readers could see a particular book uh, in a year. Um, and this, they sued the Internet Archive. And at the district court level uh, in New York, where they brought this, even though uh, we're in California and don't have anything to do with New York, um, the, uh, the district court judge said that uh, this is not right uh, for us to do for books that are in publishers' ebook collections that are licensed to libraries. Well, Mr. Kale, there's a couple things we want to break down there. First of all, why won't, why can't you get an ebook copy, a digitized copy of a book from a publisher? Um, the Internet Archive, for years and years, has been trying to buy ebooks, like buy them in the same sense that we would own a physical book, right? What libraries do is they buy, preserve, and lend. That's what they do. And the publishers are saying in the electronic world. You cannot buy an ebook, you cannot preserve an ebook, and you cannot lend an ebook. Um, that all of that's going to be controlled by them and under their terms. So they won't allow you to buy, and um, and they will, can take away or change electronic books at any time. So what happens if you go to your public library and you think you're borrowing a book uh, from your public library, an ebook? Um, actually, what they're doing is shunting you to their database at uh, the publisher or Overdrive, which is controlled by the publishers, um, and they get all the um, surveillance uh, information about who's reading what and on uh, what page and all of that. That is not in the tradition of library practices. Um, so we've tried to buy ebooks. There are a few small publishers that will sell ebooks, but very few. Um, so basically, of the big libraries, they own nothing in the digital age. Um, and that is atrocious. So that's why we've had to go and do the awkward thing of acquiring um, physical books, storing those permanently. So we have a physical book that isn't circulating, digitize it and lend it one reader at a time using the same protections that the publishers use for their imprint works, for our dusty musties, old um, sort of not very good scans. But this turns out to be extremely useful to Wikipedia users um, that want to go and do a fact check. Um, what we find is people use these books for about 30 seconds to a minute, couple minutes, mostly. They basically go to a page, check it out, and then they're done with it. It's like being standing next to a stacks in a library. That's what we're for. That's what we are as a research library. It's not for beach reading, um, but this is uh, was uh, what the publishers decided to make a massive lawsuit, three years and counting. Now it's being appealed. It's extremely expensive um, to come up against billion-dollar corporations as a nonprofit research library. How do you digitize the books? What's the process? Uh, we acquire uh, the books. So we own, own them if it's a modern uh, book. Uh, make sure that we don't have it already. right? So we try to basically just do this once so that there's only one book that gets um, uh, gets digitized and the book is photographed so a person turns the page each page goes click click turns a page raises and lowers glass so that's a nice image and click 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 pedals through a book and then um, they uh, just check they de-skew make sure all the page numbers are there nothing's fuzzy it costs 
tens of dollars per book to go and digitize um, uh, books. Then the physical book is preserved forever, um, which is an expensive investment, but books are worth it. And then we take the digital file and we make it available to the blind and dyslexic. So the major uh, use of these uh, uh, books is to the blind and dyslexic. Um, and then we make other uses available um, that we're allowed to do. For instance, interlibrary loan of a chapter um, or um, controlled digital lending until this whole fight uh, came up. It was going on for 10 years. Everybody was happy with it. It seemed like it all was working. Um, and uh, so this is the ways uh, that we are, are using these um, as well as machine learning. People are going and trying to find the first uses of words and phrases and things like that, research purposes, all the flowers in Shakespeare, that kind of type of research. Um, how did women and blacks be portrayed in early 20th century uh, fiction? Those types of research um, questions are the types of things that people are using the Internet Archives book collections for. So you use the number 26, and what is, what is that reference? That's two weeks. So if somebody wants to read uh, um, a book, you know, more than just a couple pages where they sort of do it and then they hand it back, which is by far and away what happens. But if you want to go and compare it to something like going and borrowing a book from a public library that you're going to read, then you can check out a book for up to for up to two weeks. Um, then you can try to renew it. Um, but it means that there's basically 26 readers maximum. Um, per per book. And it turns out there are many, 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 many fewer. Because um, we're dealing with dusty musties. We're dealing with the 20th century. We're dealing with um, the long tail of books. We never even put put up the most recent five years of books just to stay away from the, uh, the publisher's interests and to try and not attract their ire. But their uh, ire um, in the early pandemic um, came to light. So, Brewster Kale, do you consider the Internet Archive to be a community lending library in a sense? Um, I think of it as a research library. So there are different kinds of libraries. So, uh, And it's uh, not so much a lending library in the sense that people would go and take this and then read the whole book. That's just not, it's not how we see people use the Internet Archive's collections. It's a research library that if you wanted to go and do some fact checks, uh, on a Wikipedia article. So, for instance, Wikipedians, um, if there's a wrestle behind every web page to go and say what fact or assertion makes it into the article. And um, the way that that tussle is gone, goes on is are, do you have a good citation and can you click on it? And if we want a strong Wikipedia, um, which in this age of uh, disinformation, um, you want to go and make it so that people can click and see and reference the, uh, the claim so that it will stand up in Wikipedia. Otherwise, it will just be on whatever blog posts you can get a hold of. Um, and we know that that's being actively poisoned um, by um, very well-funded uh, institutions such as states. So... Um, so that's that's what the Internet Archive is a research library. So, Brewster Kale, if I've been on Wikipedia and I click one of the citations, chances are I've used the Internet Archive? 
Um, well, we've also fixed 17 million broken links in Wikipedia. So, yes, you'll probably have used the Wayback Machine. Um, so we, we go over uh, Wikipedia, try to find the links, see which ones are either massively changed or deleted. Um, uh, and we fixed 17 million broken links. And we have now a million uh, links in Wikipedia that go to over 250,000 books, which foundations and, and, and uh, individuals funded us to go and acquire those books and digitize them and weave them back into Wikipedia to make Wikipedia stronger. But it's not all just Wikipedia, um, right? We have tremendous collections of theological uh, information uh, because uh, seminaries are uh, largely becoming decentralized or going out of um, business. Um, and so they've donated a lot of uh, theological uh, materials, a lot of historic materials, a lot of things that are used by genealogists um, and the like. So that's the type of, of use that we tend to see. How do you monetize this? Uh, we don't at all. Zero. None. Um, so we are a nonprofit. Um, we do accept donations. Um, so there's a little heart on our archive.org. And about 110,000 people go and um, go and contribute to us. And actually more are contributing now because we're being attacked by these large-scale publishers and other trolls. So um, you know, uh, libraries are really under attack everywhere. Um, so we have um, politicians um, advocating book bans. Uh, we have legislatures now going and defunding libraries. Uh, we have these large-scale publisher uh, corp corporations, billion-dollar mega corporations that are suing not just the Internet Archive, but they sued uh, Maryland State for going and having the audacity to, to pass a law saying that publishers have to go and give reasonable licensing deals to libraries. That was uh, So they sued Maryland, and they're suing the in Internet Archive. Uh, and so we're seeing libraries under attack. Um, and what's happening is we now have a digital world and if you just have one copy on library on publishers servers they can change and delete it at any time and that's what's happening it's actively happening they've changed agatha christie jd woodhouse um there are other books that are, you know are famous have been changed but thousands of books uh from wiley were just taken off of uh, academic bookshelves um that teachers were teaching with so we basically have a, a level of control that we just have never seen in the real book, you know, real book industry. It's this ebook world where it's basically a Netflix of books and it will tend towards just greatest hits. Um, and uh, it's not what libraries um, are designed and funded for. Brewster Kale, this is a statement by Terrence Hart, the general counsel of the Association of American Publishers. Quote, there is simply no legal support for the notion that Internet Archive or a library may convert millions of ebooks from print books to public for public distribution without the consent of or compensation to the authors and publishers. Copyright, not infringement, is the engine of creativity that serves the public interest. So I don't think he's right. I mean, the libraries have been doing, have been buying publishers' products forever, as long as there have been publishers. And even before there were publishers, libraries built collections and lent them out. 
This is the same thing in the digital world. It's very constrained. It's only one copy um, that is available to everyone. So it's an extremely constrained um, world that has been going on now for 10 years by hundreds of libraries. Um, and especially in the beginning of the pandemic, when all the libraries closed, we had all of this investment not able to be um, seen um, in the physical form. So going and digitizing these and making them available is not only uh, fair use, it's good public policy. It's along the tradition of what libraries do and how libraries have supported publishers and authors forever. In the United States, we're a $12 billion industry, uh, the library system. About 3 or $4 billion of that goes to publishers' products. It's basically a social support structure for about 20% of the trade books uh, distributed in the United States is what the library system is. If we crush the library system and say you can't buy anything and you can't go and make your old, um, uh, even out of print works and make those available, we will see what's going on, which is people will turn on the libraries, they'll become defunded uh, more and more. And the libraries, which support the long tail of uh, authors, right? We buy everything. Um, how do we go and uh, have that support um, if the publishers have their way, which is basically just a Netflix of books? Brewster Kale, you use the term fair use. What does that mean uh, when it comes to copyright law? Fair use is a uh, part of the American uh, copyright doctrine. I'm not a lawyer. Um, that basically says that, yes, there are copyrights, but there are exemptions um, that are fair use. There are okay to do. So, for instance, when these same publishers went and sued Google over their um, process, the judge said, it's fair use. They're digitizing these books, making them available as snippets, as searchable snippets. That's a fair use. There's lots of different um, uh, fair use uh, court cases. It's one of the escape valves on the sort of absurdly too much control that was put in place in the United States in 1976. Before that, you know, like the, the copyright of Ben Franklin is you had copyright for 14 years and renewable once and derivative works, no problem. Um, so we had a, a long tradition in this country until it was sort of really screwed down in 1976 and fair use and specific exemptions for libraries um, to be able to, uh, for instance, lend. Um, those are uh, written into uh, copyright law and are now being challenged um, in the courts by these billion-dollar corporations. I've learned a lot about what happens when uh, billion-dollar corporations go after small nonprofits. It is a very tilted environment. I think we've all read about sort of what happens if you're poor or if you're a minority, um, but the same kind of tilt of the, uh, the justice system comes into play if you're a small nonprofit. So you mentioned you are not a lawyer. What is your background? Um, I'm a librarian. Um, so I started out uh, as a computer scientist um, and uh, learned the technology. But the idea was um, that I saw as the opportunity uh, that the Internet would become is the library. 
that we'd been promising for a long time. Vannevar Bush or the Library of Congress on your desk or Ted Nelson's Xanadu um, or what became uh, 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 Tim Berners-Lee vision of the World Wide Web. We could actually make that come true with this technology. Um, so went to library school, um, took class there and got you know, actually honorary degrees I'm, I'm kind of happy about um, in the it's specifically in the library world, but then really went to build uh, this uh the internet into a library that can make it so that anybody anywhere can learn if they're curious enough to want to have access. This is not what the publishers are trying to have happen, but that's what libraries are for. We have a, a our Carnegie moment now is to go and make it so that that dream of public education could be uh, made more broadly available to people with disabilities uh, that didn't have access to uh, to, to libraries um, or just wanted to have access digitally. Um, we can do that fairly without impacting the uh, publishers. During this whole lawsuit, they never even claimed there was a financial problem for them at all. I mean, 26 readers a year of a book, is that really going to cause damage? Actually, often actually helps, but it's 26 readers a year. Um, so they never claimed any damages. Um, and so uh, it's just sort of the quirk of the United States copyright law that has been influenced heavily by these billion dollar corporations over the course of decades to make it so that they can stomp on libraries. And Brewster Kale, how do you store your physical books that you've acquired? Um, those are carefully uh, uh, contained. They're not uh, on shelves accessible, but we know where everyone is in um, in a physical archive building that's filled with boxes of books. And it's now millions of them because libraries are deaccessioning. So it's not like you can just go back to your library and get some of these books because people want the space back for having meetings or maker labs or 3D printing or things like that. And so libraries are deaccessioning and they deaccession often to a, a nonprofit uh, bookstore called Better World Books. And then they donate to us and to um, uh, uh, Books for Africa and other places. And or they go and directly uh, donate those books to the Internet Archive. And fortunately, we have the funding to be able to go and preserve these physical books um, for decades. And we have been and it's and working. So going and keeping funding into the library system and making these treasures that are what people have spent their lives writing um, available to somebody, right? Even if it's just 26 uh, readers a year, that I think is a worthwhile uh, investment. And it's turned out to be very useful, especially for research purposes. Brewster Kale is the founder and the digital librarian of Internet Archive. Archive.org is the website. Mr. Kale, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And you're watching About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Well, each week, dozens of new books are published. Here's a few. Former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly and historian Martin Dugard have released the latest in their Killing series. This one is titled Killing the Witches, and it focuses on the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 and 1693. And LA Times technology columnist Brian Merchant is out with Blood in the Machine, which tells the story of the Luddite uprising against factory owners in rural England 200 years ago. He focuses on what happened then 
and what it can teach us about the impact of big tech in the workplace today. And finally, Boston College history professor Heather Cox Richardson turns her eye to the current era in her latest book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. Ms. Richardson has written several academic books, but is probably best known these days for her popular Substack newsletter, Letters from an American About the History Behind Today's Politics. Well, thanks for joining us on About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Book TV will continue to bring you publishing news and author programs, and a reminder that you can get this podcast on the C-SPAN Now app, and you can also watch online anytime at booktv.org. Thank you.